folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of The Art, The Secret History of Cywar, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality, Book One. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visiview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at The Farm Podcast, all one word, thefarmpodcast.store. And please consider signing up for The Farm's Patreon. On the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. Content. The upper tier, you get that in addition to access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meetings, my dispatches from my various journeys across the United States and all the weird hotspots that I hit up, State of the Unions, where you get my musings on the geopolitical state of the world, and so much more. It's a lot of content, folks, so please consider checking that out. Okay, folks, today's guest is back for round two on the farm. He is a historian, philosopher, antiquarian, jurist, Lathiogen, writer, mystic, radio, TV personality, showman, best-selling author, CEO, and a lawyer. He is the author of five books, The Royal Arch of Anoth, which is absolutely amazing, and I highly recommend it to everybody listening to this. Cinema, Symbolism 1, 2, and 3, and A Pact with the Devil, the latter a work of fiction. Folks, I give you guys the great Robert W. Sullivan IV. Thank you so much for joining us again today, Robert. Uh, thank you, Steve, for having me back on the farm. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm very much looking forward to today's show. Yes, as I'm t- as well. Well, Halloween is right around the corner, and we have already uh, started talking some horror movies on the farm. We got into The Evil Within last week, which is certainly a nutty movie of a number of levels. But to further explore horror movies, who better to do it with than this guy? Robert and I are going to consider one of the genre's most celebrated franchises, then one of its greatest directors. As to the former, it's a little something called Friday the 13th. It's, uh, I'm told it has about a billion sequels or so. I think I lost track after Jason Goes to Hell or the one that he went into (laughs) space. Um, Uh, From there, we're going to take a look at one of my all-time favorite directors. Why, I don't put him on quite the same level as Kubrick or David Lynch. John Carpenter is a god in his own right. While most well-known for his work in horror, the man has proven his skills in virtually every major genre over the course of his career. He can make you laugh, he can make you scream, and sometimes simultaneously. Naturally, he's one of the most occulted and politically charged filmmakers of his era to boot. Certainly one of the thriftiest. This man can do more with a million dollars than most directors could do with a hundred million. So we're going to cover several of his most celebrated films and then some. So on that note, let us start the show. Looking for something to do after Halloween is over? Are you into the strange, bizarre, and unusual? On November 3rd, 4th, and 5th, the Strange Realities Conference is coming back to Nashville, Tennessee, and streaming online. Come join us for three days exploring mysteries, supernatural, the occult, weird history, and more. Featuring lectures, presentations, and workshops by Tim Banal, Zach Hunt, Chelsea Vance, Bryn Collier, Tobias Whalen, Brent Rains, 
Joshua Cutchen, Kiki Dombrowski, Recluse, Nathan Isaac, Christopher Ernst, Aaron Gullius, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Mallory Samwitzki, Soraya Azkap, and special guest Steve Berg as your Master of Ceremonies. Make sure to join us for the fun and informative weekend online and at SIR Nashville November 3rd and 4th and online only November 5th. Tickets are available at strangerealitiesconference.com. All right, let's talk some Friday the 13th to start off with. Fittingly, we had a Friday the 13th in October in the lead up to Halloween in this foul year of our Lord 2023. I can't really think of a more appropriate time for it. <laughs> Robert, so uh, do you want to start by explaining the significance of the date in certain circles? Yeah, I mean, sure. The, 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 the date, I mean, of course, is considered unlucky. And that's because we, we go back to when the Knights Templar were arrested um, on uh, Friday the 13th in October, um, I believe it was 1307, don't hold me to that, um, but it was quite some time ago, and this was when they were, had become very powerful, and the, the King of France and the Pope had, had kind of had enough of these guys, and they arrested them, many, many of them escaped, you know, they didn't get all of them, a lot of them escaped, and this is where countless theories come out of, is they, they had treasure, they had hidden wisdom, they had secret knowledge and they fettered it out of the continent of Europe. And the general consensus is that they took it to uh, Scotland, uh, you know, kind of kind of went underground there and reemerge as the Freemasons years later, hundreds of years later. But the whole notion of Friday the 13th being an unlucky day stems from this idea of the arrest of the Knights Templar. Uh, that you know, you know, hundreds of years ago, um, and again, that this occurred in October, and as you correctly pointed out, we just had an October Friday the thirteenth, so uh, very, very apropos right now, and especially with Halloween right around the corner. Oh yeah, I hadn't even considered that um, that it was also in the October when the original arrest happened for the Templars. Yeah, that is pretty appropriate. <laughs> Absolutely, right. yeah. All right, so how about the name Jason? Uh, is this possibly an allusion to the Argonauts and the mythos around that? That was something that I had pondered uh, upon watching the film recently. You know, it's it's a good question. I, I never really made a connection to that. Um, the one thing that is somewhat, and I, I don't know if it has any meaning uh, in the context of the movie. Um, in the first movie, of course, Jason is a minor figure. Um, I mean, he, he really doesn't even turn up at all. He's really more of a plot twist um, for the motivation. It's really in part two and beyond. Like you said, I, I've lost count of how many sequels they are. I think, as you said, you know, when, when was, you know, Jason goes to, you know, Mars or something at this point in time, I, I don't know. Um, but, but the one thing that is unique about the name, and I think it's the only name that does this, it's, it's, you may be able to speak more to this than I can. It's, um, the only name that's formed by sequential months of the year. Um, I mean, what is it? July, August, September, October, November form the name Jason. Um, so there's something there, um, but but other other than that, I've I've never really found anything. There could be something that has some meaning to it, um, but at least in the first movie, he's somewhat of a minor figure. It's more of a motivation uh, for for Mrs. Voorhees, um, which is which is interesting. You know, there have been some theories put uh, forward that the mythos around Jason and the Argonauts was effectively a metaphor for various stellar phenomena. 
Uh, of course, it's also been closely linked uh, with some of the serious uh, speculations as well. And I guess probably Robert Temple was the first one to really explore that in depth uh, with his work in the 70s, the serious mysteries. But yeah, it's fascinating in light of a lot of the lunar symbolism that's uh, present throughout the uh, first movie. Uh, but before we get into that, what what do you see Jason exactly as symbolizing? Well, of course, in the in the in the first movie, he's really more of a as as a as a motivating factor. I mean, this is the thing that sets her off uh, more than anything. So he to me, it's more of a plot device uh, in the first movie. Now, when you get into the second one, he's he morphs into this, you know, Michael Myers, you know, type type killing machine, of course differences you know Myers only attacks on Halloween he's sort of the you know embodiment of Samhain uh this sort of omnipotent evil force that can never be destroyed um Jason doesn't really have that he just attacks you know anytime he feel like feel likes it um so you know with that um but you know you 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 can see parallels um with Friday the 13th I mean I I have the blu-ray disc here I have the uncut version of it and there's um numerous bonus features with it and one of them is with the screenwriter and uh i don't know if you've seen it or not i mean he said that you know sean cunningham who is the mind behind friday the 13th called him and and literally the conversation was cunningham had said that halloween and this is the first halloween this is the 1978 one by carpenter he said halloween was out in the theaters and was making money hand over fist and he said let's just rip it off um and he said okay and the screenwriter went to the movies and watched watched Halloween and and came up with essentially the the archetypal slasher film. He said this thing had a very, you know, simplistic plot. You know, you start the movie with this past evil, which in the Halloween movie starts with Michael killing the sister and Halloween in, in, in Friday the 13th. It's the drowning. It's 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 the mother. It's the mother killing the two counselors because of the drowning. And then you fast forward to the present and you just start picking off horny teenagers based on this past evil. Um, but the one thing that's key is that they, the, the, the teenagers are beyond the help of adults. They, the, the, the parents, you know, adult figures, figures in authority, police, fire people can't help them. And then, of course, there's some sort of uh, savior adult figure at the end that comes in and, and rescues the last remaining, uh, you know, teenager. And of course, it's Alice Friday the 13th for 13th. And of course, it's uh um lori in, in halloween he said that's that that's it he said that that's really the only you know that's the um you know the, the whole plot so you know in, in that aspect really in the, at least in the first movie uh jason is really more of just a plot device than anything else that's what i would see it as how about uh camp crystal lake or specifically the name crystal lake do you detect any significance in that uh, no, but there is there is something very unique going on um, with that. That is one of the, it, it's a very unique repetitive um, device uh, that that's used. It's one of the best ones I've ever seen, and it occurs at the very beginning of the movie. Um, and 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 this scene does have some unique symbolism. And again, we were going back and forth uh, with this with a lot of the lunar imagery, which we I mean that that's the whole movie to me. I mean, is is just the moon. I mean, that's that's the whole you know, end and be all of, the, of this thing is, is the moon. But if if you watch it, and we'll get into this scene again, it's the scene where Annie, uh, the cook, and, and her name is interesting also because Annie, the cook, is, is a throwback to Halloween, um, which is Laurie's friend was Annie, Annie Brackett. Um, so that's a direct link uh, to the to the two movies. 
and this is when she's approaching the dog sitting between the gas pumps. Um, I can't remember if this is in the theatrical version. I know it's in the uncut version. It's a, it's a very, it's a very good scene. And you have the dog <clears throat> sitting between the two gas pumps. And I, I, I think there's some very deep meaning to this, but when she, she kneels down to start petting the dog, um, if you, if you go back and watch this, she says something to the effect of, uh, how far is it to camp crystal Lake? Well, right as that is happening, take a look at the, at the gas, at the gas pump on the, um, on the right side, it actually has the word crystal light written on it. Um, and of course this is a reference to the sort of gas it's pumping, but you have her saying crystal lake, and then you have written on the gas pump crystal light. Um, that's what's known in the world of the occult as an art of memory mnemonic. Um, that comes out of the world of Giordano Bruno. By doing that, what, but by, by doing that subtle repetition, um, what it is doing, what the filmmakers are doing, are implanting these, this film in your subconscious mind. It's, it's a way of making it memorable. Um, it's a way of making it uh, for, for you to remember it. Um, again, it's what's something called as the art of memory. Um, it, it starts out as something different. It goes way, way back. It starts with the ancient Greeks. There's a way to remember stuff. Uh, they didn't have writing tools. This is pre-printing press. Um, and it, it morphs into this occult archetypal device by guys like Giordano Bruno and, you know, during the Renaissance. Um, but, but one of the key, one of the key techniques of art of memory is repetition. Um, and there you have this really interesting rep repetitive device where she's saying crystal lake, and then you have the word crystal light um, right next to her. Um, so, so I, I always, uh, I, I always uh, thought that was very unique. I just picked up on that. This, this was recent. I, I hadn't seen the movie in years. Um, and, and like you said, Halloween is right around the corner. And at this time of the year, I always start watching horror movies. And, uh, I, I hadn't, I hadn't watched Friday the 13th probably in at least five or six years. And I thought, let me throw it on. Um, and I started watching it really more through an esoteric lens. Uh, and, and, and the, the thing that just jumped off the screen at me was just the moon symbolism. Um, I mean, that to me was, that to me is really the heart and soul of what this whole movie is about. Well, let's get into Annie's encounter after she uh, departs from the gas station and that uh, curious dog. So she's later picked up at a three-way crossroads before being murdered by what turns out to be uh, Jason's mother. Right. So that was fascinating because, again, crossroads are so uh, crucial to Hakate, the uh, goddess, among other things, of the moon and so forth. Well, I, I, absolutely. Um, when you watch the movie... Um, keep your eyes peeled for the full moon because not only is it referenced, um, I mean, you'll see it. I mean, the movie, it's the first thing you see. I mean, when, when the movie starts, is the full moon. I mean, and the two camp counselors back in whenever it is, 56, 57, are murdered on the full moon. Um, and then when when you get to the end of the movie, the one guy, Steve Christie, says, oh, it's a full moon tonight. And the, he's this when he's talking to the cop. So the whole movie is set on the full moon. And then you have the moon, the lunar references with the three, you know, phases of the moon or the three faces of the moon, I should say. You clearly have the reference to the crossroads. That that happens not once but twice, um, you know. And and at the crossroads, this is where Annie goes. This is where the guy drops her off. There's a cemetery there, um, and this is clearly a reference to the moon goddess Hecate. I I completely agree with you. This is all the embodiment of Mrs. Voorhees. She represents these three three faces of the moon because she's Hecate, the evil female. That she's also Diana, the huntress. Who's killing? Who's hunting down and killing the counselors? And then you have her as Artemis, uh, the protect protectress of virgins. 
because this is what always sets her off is, is the camp counselor screwing around and fornicating. So you have those three faces of the moon embodied by Mrs. Um, Voorhees. And then I also like, again, this, this kind of is like another repetitive mnemonic with, with, with Annie. Um, and, and as you correctly point out, she, she gets dropped off at the crossroads by the truck driver, Enos. Um, and then she gets, she's hitchhiking and she gets picked up by Mrs. Voorhees at the time. We don't know that's who it is. Um, and, <clears throat> Again, this was interesting. We find this out later in the movie is, of course, Annie um, is going is going to Crystal Lake to be the cook. And, of course, we later find out later in the movie that Mrs. Voorhees was was the original cook. Um, so we have one cook killing the old, you know, the old cook killing the new cook. And again, this is sort of a repetitive uh, mnemonic uh, going on inside the film that the filmmakers, I think, exploit very well. It's, again, a way to, to remember the movie, but it's subtle. You know, you know, you know, your conscious mind really doesn't pick up on it. Um, but, yeah, you, you do have um, the, these, the, the, these subtle references to, um, to, to the moon um, with the crossroads. And, of course, th this is all being, the, being embodied by Mrs. Voorhees. Um, the other thing I'll mention and you had pointed this out in the email and I, I agree with you. <clears throat> I wanted to bring this up with you um, is, is you had the Hecate, the, the evil, you know, the evil side of the moon, as it were, the evil female version of the moon. Um, you, you have a couple of her totems showing up. Um, you have the serpent um, in, in, in one of the, um, in one of the uh, rooms, you know, in one of the, you know, yeah, they cabins, find the, the snake under the bed, I think. Yeah, the cabins, that's right, the snake under the bed. And then you have the dog um, between the two gas pumps, which is another totem of, of Hecate. The one thing that I, I, I kind of have been wrestling about within my mind, and this is sort of, I, 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 I'm wondering to myself, is this intentional or is this coming out of the subconscious realm of the filmmakers? I've watched this scene a dozen times, and, I, and it just, it strikes me, and this is very archetypal, um, when I watch the scene of the gas pumps, um, and again, we talk about the moon imagery, I feel like I'm looking at the tarot card of the moon. Um, and this is the card of the Rider weight deck where you have the two towers with the dog in the middle. And of course, when Annie's approaching the gas pumps, they would be the two towers and you have the dog in between them. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, is, is this, you know, again, this this memory technique where you know, this lunar imagery where they're just implanting it in your, in your subconscious mind by actually putting a tarot card um, on the screen for you to see uh, the moon card, um, you know, with the scene with Annie approaching the two towers, the two gas pumps with the dog in between them. Um, I, I, I kind of wrestled in my mind, you know, wrestling with this, is, is this intentional or is this something just subconsciously coming out of the filmmakers, uh, you know, un, uh, coming out of their unconscious minds? So um, it, it's hard to say, but but without question, I mean, the, the full moon imagery and the lunar imagery, um, I think is pretty irrefutable. And, you know, is it, to me what this whole movie, you know, it, if you ask me, like, you know, name a movie that kind of signifies the moon and moon worship, this would be the movie that comes comes to my mind first and foremost. No, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, but on the you know notion of mnemonic devices and the franchise as a whole, they actually go to the moon and the full moon frequently throughout um, the series. Gosh, I remember I, I got into Friday the 13th watching those marathons that uh, USA would do. Sure. And um, gosh, I would always, because they had all these moonshots constantly, and I would go up to my parents and like, why don't they use the song Bad Moon Rising by CCR in it? Because they always have the moon. It would be the perfect song for this. Right, right, <laughs> right. 
Yeah, I, you know, it's 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 been so long. To be honest, I've watched the first one probably in the last month, like you know, seven or eight times. The second one and the third one, I sort of remember, but I, I, you know, beyond that, I, I couldn't, I couldn't speak to it. But yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if, um, you know, the moon, the moon, you know, didn't turn up, you know, in other movies. The, 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 the one thing that makes this one so spectacular is, and this is just, a, you know, there's, there's a couple other really unique things in, in here that I, 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 th- I thought, I thought were kind of cool. Um, I, I'll mention briefly, but is, is you really did in this one have the Mrs. Voorhees, you know, really embodying the three faces of the moon. Um, I couldn't help but notice when I watched this, um, you know, was this sort of, you know, I, I always felt like this was sort of a play almost on Alice in Wonderland to an extent, you know, the, the, the survival of of the of the uh, this is the first movie i'm talking about the survivors of course alice and i kind of you know you know she's kind of going navigating this sort of you know not you know this wonderland darkly camp crystal lake you know undergoing all these trials you know hurdling all these obstacles and she's finally rescued at the end i couldn't help but maybe think of lewis carroll's alice in wonderland um and then there was one other thing i, I picked up on that was quite unique um and that was with the character brenda um and let me pull this up. I, I, I have this. I had to write down because um, this this one was kind of um, un- unique. Is is if you if you watch her, it's the scene after where they're playing Monopoly. She, it starts raining and she goes back to the cabin and and there's a scene where she hears something outside and goes out. She's eventually murdered, of course. If you take a look at um, her cabin's name, uh, the, the the name on the cabin is Seneca, um, and that's very that's very interesting. I, I couldn't help but notice that because um, Seneca was a, a Roman poet um, and all his plays are tragedies involved involving revenge, murder, gore, bloodshed. Um, and of course, that's exactly what Friday the 13th is. It's essentially a revenge tale that's all about murder, gore, revenge. Um, so I thought that was a little uh, a unique little nod in there uh, to, to, to that um, with the cabin's name. But yeah, I mean, I mean, th- this is one of those movies for me. Um, I always question when I see stuff like this: is this, you know, how how sophisticated are the filmmakers? Is this all intentional, or is this, you know, like a product of their subconscious minds as well? Um, you know, I, I just don't, you know, I don't know how adroit Sean Cunningham is, um, but he seems to be. I mean, I, I have to believe the moon stuff is definitely intentional. Um, but when I see something like Seneca and I, you know, you know, I go to that, I just wonder, huh, you know, did he actually mean to put that in there? Or is this, uh, you know, just his, just, you know, the director's subconscious mind com- coming out. It's hard to say. Well, the, that note too, of other really potent symbolism and whether or not it was deliberate. How about decapitation in the first film? I mean, the snake that we were just talking about is beheaded uh, roughly right. halfway through. And then of course, Jason's mother is famously decapitated at the very end of it headlessness is of course a wash with the cold symbolism and actually even in the second movie too it's sort of interesting that jason erects like a shrine to his mother's severed head as well right yeah i mean i mean it's it's definitely interesting and and with the one with the snake and then with with her being decapitated again this is a rep- repetitive uh device um that's being used the the guy the guy who who is really you know, it's like foreshadowing also. And the guy who's really right now is an expert at that is Ari Aster. 
Um, he loves foreshadowing in all his movies. And again, that's sort of, you know, and, and, that, and that's, that's, that's what's really interesting with it is um, the, the, the snake is beheaded with a machete and that's exactly what Mrs. Voorhees is beheaded with. It's, it's the machete. Um, so that's absolutely another one of those, you know, mnemonic uh, devices um, that, you know, pops up, pops up in there. Uh, very, very interesting. Um, I, I, I'm with you though. I mean, I, when I see it, you know, the thing with Seneca, I'm not so sure about, but with stuff like that, that definitely has to be intentional. I mean, these guys must know what they're doing. Let's start getting into Mr. John Carpenter here. Uh, Robert, I know you're really big on what you call a cult casting. I suspect this is really applicable to the stable of actors Carpenter has used over the course of his career. So what is it uh, in terms of cult casting and do you see it as a do you see it applying to some of Carpenter's recurring players? You know, you know, in, in Carpenter, I kind of don't, um, I, you know, because he said in interviews that he just uses he likes he just likes to use them all over again um, and just using the same actor um, just because they like them. That's really um, I, I wouldn't say that's a called casting, um, in my opinion. Um, you know, I mean, I know in interviews with like Prince of Darkness, he wrote those characters like, you know, the, the, the Catholic priest. I know he wrote for Pleasance, the one guy he wrote for Dennis Dunn. And then the one guy, uh, you know, I can't remember the actor's name. Uh, he wrote for Egg Shen. And those were, you know, two from Big Trouble in Little China. Um, so when, a, you know, when it, like Lynch uses Kyle McLaughlin over again, um, that to me really doesn't scratch the surface of a called casting. It's when you see an actor being used by someone else, um, but but there's some sort of reason that 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 person is being placed in a movie, and it's usually to draw on something from an earlier work. Um, with Carpenter, he just seems to like to use certain actors, um, you know, for whatever reason. Um, and to my opinion, that really doesn't rise to the level of it. Um, he just seems to, you know, you know, I, I mean, like I said, I know with Big Trouble and or with Prince, um, he he just he said, oh, I, I really liked working with these actors. So I just wrote these parts for them. Um, so in that aspect, I wouldn't really go down the occult casting road um, with Carpenter. Now, certainly his films have a lot of uh, symbolism. And of course, I guess. You know, with with the one with Escape from New York, you have one of the granddaddies of the pre 9-11 imagery in it. Um, but no, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of Carpenter and, uh, you know, he he his films usually there's something always usually hidden in there one way or another. Well, all right. Halloween is probably Carpenter's most well-known movie, and for good reason. In many ways, it's the most iconic and effective slasher movie ever made. Certainly, it's one of the most financially successful as well. Uh, can you give us a quick rundown of the history of Halloween and how a William Shatner mask came to define <laughs> the franchise? Well, right. I mean, I mean, that's a. I don't mind telling the story, but that's that's much more well known than it was ten years ago. Um, yeah, I mean, Carpenter wanted to make this movie. Um, it's it's very archetypal. Um, it was him and Deborah Hill were really the two two brains behind it. Um, they they, you know, had to you know the Hollywood studios weren't really interested. They got backing by uh, Mustafa Akid. Akid, uh, you'll see his name right. I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but you'll see his name right right at the beginning of of the credits. Um, I mean the. There are so many memorable things about the movie. I mean, I mean, it's just such a great film anyway. I mean, you had the whole idea of Michael Myers embodying Halloween's coming out, you know, on the evening of this evening of darkness and, you know, stalking babysitters. I mean, you know, of course, 
you know, who, who in their youth hasn't been babysat. So this is something that we could all identify with. Um, without question, it has arguably the most famous soundtrack of any horror movie, um, you know, ever, ever made. I mean, I mean, the, 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 the Carpenter music, I mean, in that it's just so iconic. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, it's hard, it's hard for me even to think of a runner up, maybe the tubular bells and the exorcist. Um, but of course that, that music was written pre exorcist. I mean, you know, freak just incorporated it. I mean, the Halloween music was written for the movie. Um, you know, and I, I mean, I just can't think of any, anything else, uh, music wise in the horror genre, um, that, 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 that rises to that. I mean, I can think of other songs from, you know, like the wizard of Oz, you know, over the rainbow that are just so attached to the film. But when it comes to horror, I mean, that, that, that music that Carpenter produced, um, you know, just so iconic. And then of course you get this idea of, of, of the mask, um, that this was, this was an interesting story with this because one, one of, one of the, uh, earlier takes was they were going to, they were going to use a clown mask and, uh, they, they they tried that and, they, and Carpenter said it was really creepy, um, but it just didn't work. Uh, they said you know it, there was something kind of wrong with it. So they wanted the, they wanted the face to be sort of like this blank human being, this emotionless human being. And and they 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 got at the time this was you know 1977 78 they got um, a William Shatner Captain Kirk mask. Um, and what they did was they hollowed out the eyes, they painted it white and they kind of messed up the hair. They matted up the hair and that's it. And it worked perfectly. Um, and certainly, again, this is one of the more iconic, you know, memorable things about that movie is the mask, this faceless, you know, entity. I mean, it, it really turns Michael Myers into, um, you know, this force of nature, which is what 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 Carpenter has always talked about. If you if you listen to Carpenter talk about this movie. Um, you know, the, 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 this is this is uh, you know one of the things he was going for was to have Myers represent this this very you know evil force of nature that comes out on Halloween night. One one of the criticisms Carpenter had, and I agree with him, of the of the Rob Zombie uh, movies years later was he said you know and this was Carpenter speaking, but I agree with him. He said if you 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 learn too much about Michael, um, you know he was humanized too much. Um, you know, and he said in my movies, when, when, you know, it's, it's Michael remains a mystery, you know, he's just this emotionless kid at the beginning of it. And, that, and that's it. Um, you know, you never really see him again, you know, until he has the mask on. Now you see him escaping the mental institution. Um, uh, but he's just, he's just meant to be this emotionless human being that you don't know too much about. And I, I, I think, I, I think that is one of the things that really works in Carpenter's movie, um, that, that, that kind of took away from the Rob Zombie film uh, or films, I should say. But yeah, I mean, when it comes to this movie, there, there is, in my opinion, um, there's really a latent, um, what I call Freudian nightmare scenario, uh, sexual symbolism um, in, in, in this film. And then the other thing that I've really liked in it, and, and this carries into the sequel, this is Halloween two, this is the 1981 version uh, I mean, I know some, you know, there's movies that have been retconned. This has been retconned out and whatever. The 81 sequel um, that I always thought was interesting was um, the the Dr. Dementia Marathon. Um, and, and Carpenter has always said that these were just some of his favorite movies. Um, but but if you if you look at them psychologically and you look at what's going on inside the films, they really are almost what's happening inside Halloween. We could talk about that if you want. But I'll, I've been talking for a while. Stop right there. But certainly we, we can get into those aspects as well.
You know, that's intriguing. I never really thought about that. But yeah, um, I think actually in the first movie as well, but then definitely in the second one, a big part is just kind of seeing the kids sitting around periodically watching horror movies on the television as, uh, you know, the real life quote unquote horror movie is unfolding around them. I never picked up on that, but that's a fascinating point. Well, yeah, when you when you watch the first one, it's a it's a trifecta. It was Dr. Dementia's three horror movies in the first movie. You only see two. But then the third one, you get in Halloween two, you get the, the the next one. Well, the three movies are the thing, um, and and this was of course a movie that Carpenter had remade a couple years later, I think in eighty two or eighty three. This was one of Carpenter's favorite movies, and of course the the idea, the parallel between the thing and Michael Myers is sort of this you know entity that can't be stopped, you know, the supernatural entity that can't be reckoned with or bargained with. It was this force. Then the other one was Forbidden Planet, and this is the one in the uh, in the first movie. And For- Forbidden Planet is a loose remake of Shakespeare's The Tempest, where this guy's id, this guy's shadow, is running around killing people. And of course, that's what Michael is—is is, you know this this shadow force that's running around murdering people. So the movies, the two movies, are reflecting what's happening inside the movie on the screen. And then when you move to Halloween two in '81, of course, Michael's been shot you know, and presumed dead um, by, by the Donald Pleasant's character, Sam Loomis. And we haven't even talked about all the psycho references, uh, you know, in this thing yet. Um, but this is, of course, at, at the end of the first one, Loomis, uh, Donald Pleasant shoot Michael, shoots Michael Myers. He falls out the balcony and presumed dead. And of course, he, he goes down, he's gone. And then you get into the, the, the third movie in Halloween 2, which is Night of the Living Dead, which is about zombies, resurrected dead. And at that point, that's kind of what Michael is. He's a zombie. You know, he's just lumbering around, you know, murdering people, kind of like the Night of the Living Dead zombies. So I always found that interesting that the three movies in the trifecta of uh, Dr. Dementia are sort of reflecting Michael Myers, what's going on inside the movie you're watching. Um, and then again, and we could talk about it if you don't, if you want, we don't have to. Um, and it's more really in the first one. Um, there is really a lot of latent um, sexual imagery going on. Um you know, what I describe in the books as a Freudian nightmare. I, I, I can't think of um, any other way um, to describe it. Um, and it's very, it's very, very um, disturbing, I think. You want to break that down for us? Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the whole thing is, you know, and Car- Carpenter has kind of denied this to an extent, but I, I think it's there. I mean, you have, you know, the little boy, Michael Myers at the beginning, killing his sister with the phallus, the knife. Um, stabbing her um, over and over again. And I, I always saw this as a metaphor of sexual intercourse of, of, of the boy, um, you know, you know, kind of having, you know, you know, stabbing the sister, you know, it, it's a metaphor for the sex act where this becomes, and you, you know, you just see it and you kind of pass it over. It, it doesn't really become more apparent um, till later on in the movie where, you know, Michael escapes and it, it's sort of a rep- repetitive devices. He, he's stabbing, the, the 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 girlfriends of Laurie who are, are fooling around with their boyfriends and again it's 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 a metaphor the murder the murder of the babysitters is a is, is a metaphor for for you know the sex act with Michael um, but of course where this kind of becomes strange is and this is where you get you get into the Freudian you know darker aspects of it is the the virgin character of 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 Laurie this is the Jamie Lee Curtis character she sort of repeats you know what michael is doing she uses the phallus 
she's the virgin, but she uses the phallus, you know, the, the knitting needle, the knife at the end to do in Michael. Um, and again, th this is sort of the, the, the killing, the killing of her or the killing of Michael, or at least the, the disabling of Michael towards the end is really Laurie's sex act is, is, is Laurie's form of sexual intercourse. Um, and th this is, you know, what Freud would call just a total mental breakdown. Um, you know, you know, where, where it's, it, it's, it's the murder, you know, or the, or the attack of Michael by Laurie with, with the phallus, with the knitting needle and with the knife is sort of, is sort of metaphorically her losing her virginity. Um, I thought that was a very latent theme inside the movie, um, that really, I don't think has really ever been fully explored, um, or talked about it. I talk about it in my books. I mean, but because I think it's very dark, um, but but I definitely think that's present in, in in that first Halloween movie. No, I can see that, and it would definitely be in keeping with the uh, obviously profound influence that Psycho had on the film. Uh, it was kind of funny when you were talking about iconic horror scores. I was uh, racking my brain, and the closest I could think of would be the Psycho thing. Psycho, yeah, right. I mean, and and I agree with you, Steve. That you know, you know, I mean, it's 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 no state secret. You know, I mean, I guess, I guess, I, I guess, I'm going to eat, eat crow a little bit because you asked me earlier about a cult casting. I guess I'm going to take that back a little bit um, because. Clearly, um, Halloween, um, you know, bars heavily from Psycho just with the name Sam Loomis. But there you go. I mean, if, if you want to ask me about a caught casting, there would be. Um, obviously, the Jamie Lee Curtis appearance is obviously meant to draw in her mother, uh, you know, who, of course, you know, you know, was was the heroine uh, in Psycho. So using Jamie Lee Curtis um, is is clearly a reference to her mother in 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 Psycho. Um, I forget her name. What was the mother's name? Vivian uh, Lee, I think. What was it? Vivian Lee. I no, think? Vivian Lee was Scarlett O'Hara in uh, Gone with the Wind. It was oh, Janet, Lee. Janet, Janet, Janet Lee. Lee. Janet Lee. That's it. Janet Lee's appearance is um, clearly a reference to Janet Lee, um, who is Psycho. So there, there, there would be a carpenter using, you know, an actress, Jamie Lee Curtis, to draw on a performance. In this instance, her mother in Psycho. So there would be. I, I crow. I, I take that back. Um, there would be an example of Carpenter using an actress to convey, you know, to draw in the vibe from Psycho, um, from Hitchcock's uh, masterpiece. So. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, and you're right. You know, you, you think about horror music. Yeah, I guess Psycho would be the runner up. Um, or if, I guess if Halloween would be 1A, I guess you could say Psycho would be 1B uh, when it comes to, to horror scores. But oh, yeah, that, that would be a great example. Yeah, yeah, that would be a great example of, uh, of, of using an actress to draw on uh, another movie. Uh, well, you've also detected some subtle hints of witchcraft in the Halloween film, uh, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. Can you break that down for us? Yeah, that, 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 that's absolutely true. Um, this is more, unfortunately, you're going to have to watch the made-for-TV, or the way I say the made-for-TV, the, the television version of Halloween to really um, see that theme um, in there. And, and what, I, what I always thought was... If, if, if you look at, at, you know, just witchcraft, I mean, what are the two whole high holy days of witchcraft? It's Beltane, which is May the 1st, you know, Valpurgis, you know, you could say it's the day before. And of course, Halloween, October 31st. Of course, the, the whole first movie is set around, um, you know, is set on Halloween. So that, that's a no brainer. If, if you watch the TV version and this has the deleted scenes in it, there is a scene in it um, where um and it's you can watch it on youtube um it's where loomis 
goes before this board at, at the Smith Grove Sanitarium that had Michael committed. That this is still in, in the past. This is supposed to be from like, you know, 1963 or whatever. This is after the murder of the sister. Um, and they're having a hearing on Michael Myers. Um, and they decide to commit him, you know, to, to the Smith Grove Sanitarium. And, and Loomis is kind of saying, you know, we can never make sure he, you know, make sure he never gets out. I want to watch him. I, you know, I want to study him. Um, and there's a date that appears on this hearing. And the date is May the 1st. Um, and again, th th this whole idea of, I mean, we have these two dates of Halloween, Beltane. These are the high holy days in, 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 in you know, for the witch in the witch's season. And I kind of always looked at it. If, if, if you don't have the deleted scene, it kind of, I'll be the first to admit, it kind of falls aside. But when you watch it, um, if you watch the movie with that scene in it, with the May the 1st reference, and of course, then we get the Halloween reference where Michael comes out, you know, later kills the babysitters. I, I always kind of looked at it as this idea of almost white witchcraft versus black witchcraft, where you had the two girlfriends, you had the, you know, the trio of, of the girlfriends, Lori, Annie, and uh, Linda. And I always thought that, you know, was, was Linda and Annie who are sort of, sort of like, you know, the darker magicians, you know, you know, engaging in, you know, alcoholism, partying, drug use, you know, fornicating, you know, you know, premarital sex, you know, is, is this, is this, you know, sort of cavorting, sort of orgiistic cavorting, sort of reminiscing of a witch's Sabbath and sort of almost summoning Michael, you know, and, you know, he wipes them out anyway. And then you had Lori, who was sort of the virgin sort of the kind of good girl, maybe the white witch, who, of course, ultimately defeats him at the end. And I, I, I did kind of think there was almost this latent, I mean, it's very subtle, you know, witchcraft sort of theme uh, going on. Because, of course, you know, Halloween, you know, Beltane, I mean, these are the two, you know, high holy days on the witch's calendar. Um, and, you know, I, I, I kind of did get that vibe um from watching the movie and again it's especially the one when you when you watch the one with loomis going before the board and you'll see the date of may the first you know for me it was like a light bulb going off over my head and i started watching the movie as sort of this you know you know kind of you know where you had the two evil you know women kind of as the black magicians and then you had laurie as sort of the white magician sort of combating this evil force as it were and of course they lose they they get butchered. They're 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 no good. But Laurie survives it. Um, I, I always thought that was maybe an interesting way to watch the movie. Yeah, no, and they would certainly play up some of the druidic aspects of Halloween in the later films too. Um, I always was kind of fascinated actually by the um, the sixth one with that bizarre subplot. Well, they brought the subplot in with the fifth one, but they really went into the druidic cult uh, heavily in the sixth film. Definitely, it resulted. Yeah, that was called. It was like the the cult of Thorn, I believe. It yes, was. yes, yes. The cult of Thorn. Yes. Yeah, where where the druids, where the people in Haddonfield were like descendants of druids. I've seen this. I've seen these, but it's been a while since I have looked at them. But it was like the the people. Well, it was actually the mental asylum. I think is where the cult was based out of. Because I was think it? it was it was the doctor who was like the head of the cult, if I recall. That that that's it. But 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 I think there was also people in Haddonfield who may have been involved with it, where they picked this child to be invested with like these superhuman powers, and he had the tattoo of the thorn, I, I think, on his wrist or something like that. And you're mm -hmm. right, it was it was the uh, like head doctor. Um, at, at Smith Grove, I think, who was sort of like the mastermind behind all of this. Um, there's actually two versions of that film, the sixth one. Um, one is better than the other. Um, one is like a producer's cut. Um, I've seen the one. I don't know if I've seen the other, but 
when you get into like five and six, those are ones I I haven't seen those in years. Um, I, I wish they'd released them in Blu-ray um, and both versions of them. I, I think they did in 4K, but I really wish they would um, put out some sort of like Blu-ray box set of them. I, I'd probably buy it uh, where, where, you know, where, where I could just get all of them. But um, yeah, I mean, they, they do explore that, um, you know, juridic theme in the, in that one. And of course they, they explore the juridic theme, you know, granted it, it's sort of a standalone, but of course in Halloween three, uh, you get you get into really the more of the witchcraft theme with the druids and and that that also has a lot of uh, you know we talked about Friday the Thirteenth that also has a lot of uh, lunar symbolism in it is the third Halloween movie um, so mm-hmm. yeah uh, very 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 interesting. You want to get into Halloween three a bit? That was uh, I believe the last one that Carpenter and Deborah Hill were directly involved in. Yeah, yeah, you you you're probably right there. Um, yeah, I, I the what the one thing I I always like talking Halloween three, um, which which is um, you know when it came out, I mean it was really panned, um, and no one liked it. It's undergone a renaissance in the last five years. Now it's considered a classic, which is good. I think it's a good movie. I mean, I I like it. I mean, if you know, I understand that there's no really Michael Myers in it. I understand that it kind of trades on the name of Halloween. It would never have been made if it wasn't called Halloween three. It's it's what it's what got it made, but it, it's what also doomed it. Um, but I think it's a very original movie. I very much like it. Um, you're right. It's I think it's the last uh, Hill uh, Carpenter co- collaboration. Um, of course, you have the Jamie Lee Curtis cameo in it. Um, she's the voice of the operator and the curfew woman uh, in 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 uh, in um, Santa Mira. Um, so you have a Jamie Lee Curtis appearance in it also. Um, and again, if, if, if you remember, um, the whole, the whole thing with Stonehenge was, it was one of the stones that one of the stones that was stolen, one of the, whatever was the blue stones was measured the lunar cycle. There, there's a reference to, um, the lunar cycle in there. And, uh, it, it, it has to do with the number 33, the, the, the lunar solar cycle, it's the moon and the, and the sun to reach the same alignment. It's 33 years. And if, if you pay attention to the movie, the, the number 33, this really has nothing to do with Freemasonry, but the number 33 is referenced um, all over the place. Connell Cochran, CC33, the, the, the route to get to uh, Santa Mira's Route 33. And again, this is this lunar uh, reference going on inside of... Um, inside of Halloween three, very, very unique, very, very, very well done. And again, I, I like the movie. Um, I, I like the whole idea. It's one of the first movies, I believe outside of evil speak that uses the computer age or at least the coming computer age with black magic. Um, evil speak is the, is the other one. It's a very good movie. I, I, I very much liked it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's very underrated, and I'm happy to see that it's also started to uh, gain more appreciation in recent years. And I I definitely thought that it was a great uh, concept by Carpenter and Hill to try and uh, take the franchise in a different direction rather than just sort of repeating uh, the formula of the first film over and over again. It's uh, a little unfortunate, I think, that it didn't catch on. It uh, could have provided an interesting direction for the uh, the series to go in. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree with you. I mean, it was supposed they they had come up with this idea, which you know, um, that to 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 do like an annual movie every once in a while, call it like Halloween four, five, six, but just set it on Halloween. But it was had nothing to do with Michael Myers. Um, but of course, 
people wanted Michael. And, you know, as you pointed out, he was kind of sick and tired of it at that point. He, he didn't even want to do part two. Um, they finally, you know, paid him the money and he essentially produced it uh, with Hill. But I mean, he, 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 he didn't really even want to do a sequel. I mean, he knew he was going to, or he knew a sequel was going to happen after the massive success of the first one. But yeah, I mean, I, I always thought, I remember watching Halloween three back in like 82, 83, I did not see the movie in the theaters, but I remember watching it on cable TV. Um, this was like a year after it had come out, you know, like on HBO or something. And um, I always liked it. I always thought, you know, it was one of those movies where I used to watch it, where it'd be like, everyone's telling me this movie's no good and that I shouldn't like it, yet I like it a lot. Um, so, you know, I, I've always been a fan of the thing and, and it, it's really good to see that, you know, in 2023, it's getting its proper due. How about the escape films? Obviously, they're really significant for their political commentary and satire. But um, is there a deeper es esoteric significance to either of the films? Well, you know, it's it's I'm more of a fan of the first one than of the second one. I've seen both of them. It's been a while since I've watched the second one. I mean, I always I, I'd have to go back and look. I remember the first the one thing with the first one that always stands out is, of course, um, you know, it, it 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 it's it you know but when you see the what to me the first one has you know it goes back in time but it does have you know the sort of one of the pre 911 images in it of course the plane striking lower manhattan this is air force 1 um i thought that was interesting i mean it is this sort of dystopian you know future um i know that carpenter really wasn't a big fan of ronald reagan um and i i kind of you know what 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 he always said you know was like they live was sort of, you know, the space age Reaganomics, you know, to an extreme. I've always, I've always found they live to be an interesting one because, you know, that that's, you know, that that's one of those movies that fuses the Gnostic idea of archons, um, you know, sort of pulling the strings with the whole idea of the Illuminati, you know, hidden puppet masters. I, I've, I've always, I've always liked that. I, I, I thought, I thought some of the stuff going on in they live was good. I loved, um, some some of the things uh, going on in um, in 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 Escape from New York. I, I, the one thing that was unique, and I have to go look this up. I, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it was with the Air Force One. The the code number was David fourteen, um, and I, I remember I remember looking this up. But I'd have to go take another look at it. But I mean, that's obviously a reference to King David. Um, and, you know, the whole idea of the president being sort of this messianic savior of Western civilization. But the other thing was, and I, I can't remember what it was, but it was either the name David or King David in, in Hebrew gematria equaled the number 14. Um, and I, I always thought that was interesting. It was David 14. And of course, in gematria, David equaled 14. Um, I, 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 I found that unique. So they, they must have known something there. Um, with, with that to kind of kind of invest this this thing with sort of this you know you know sort of Hebrew occult you know Kabbalistic mysticism uh, going going on with with Air Force One with, with David fourteen, but um, I, I I always liked um, the first one I thought I thought the first one was great um, with the second one I did see it I mean it's kind of almost uh, you know I, it was okay I, I didn't love it. Um, but it's been so long since I've seen the first one. I'm just going to hold back commentary. But the, the first one I always thought was, you know, was excellent. I, I, I love the first one. And, and that's that's another thing that was always debated. And I, I don't know this for certain, but um, it's always been rumored that 
um, Jamie Lee Curtis is in that one as well. That she is also the narrator. Yeah, of, I think she. Yeah, she narrates the beginning. The I beginning think. of it, right? That that's what I I I'd be, I never picked up on that, and I think I had read somewhere that oh, she's in that one also. She's the narrator of of the very beginning of it. Um, so that would make sense also. Um, but no, I I always thought the first one was was a, a really good film. No, it absolutely is. Um, well, I, I did find the use of Lee Van Cliff in that one interesting as well, because it seemed like Carpenter had that, especially when all, um, virtually all the Kurt Russell movies, that sort of obsession with bringing the, um, oh, you know, the Fistful of Dollars trilogy into the modern world. Uh, of course, Lee Van Cliff was such a big part of A Few Dollars sure. More and uh, The Good and the Bad and the Ugly. So I think sure. that kind of deliberately brought a bit of the vibe of those films into uh, the escape franchise. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it very well could. I, I love those. Uh, I love those uh, dollar trilogy movies with Leone. They're, they're very biblical. Um, they have a lot of, um, you know, what I would call Catholic mysticism in them. Um, really, really all three of them do. The, the first one does the second one does, but he really hits the home run with the third one with good to bad. Um, that's the one that really has a lot of the biblical imagery in it. Um, but no, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of, of Leone and Carpenter. And I love uh, escape from New York. And yeah, I mean, you could, you could definitely see, you know, maybe with Leigh Van Cleef um, being in there that, you know, it was definitely conveying sort of this end of the world, apocalyptic religious imagery uh, going on inside escape. Uh, yeah, definitely. Well, it's, it's interesting, too, because he kind of tries to update, I think, the man with no name character is Kurt Russell in the Escape films. But then he's basically parroting it um, in Big Trouble in Little China again with Kurt Russell. Um, I have a Big Trouble in Little China. That's probably my second favorite Carpenter movie behind In the Mouth of Madness. Where do you stand on that one? Yeah, I love Big Trouble in Little China. Um, I always I like it a lot. Um, I always kind of looked at it as... <laughs> I always thought that Carpenter was trying to make a Shaw Brothers Kung Fu movie and it didn't really work. Um, I mean, the cinematography of those Kung Fu movies, I mean, they are just filmed in a way that can't be duplicated. I mean, there was just something about those movies that, you know, with the sound effects, the dubbed voices, I mean, they really are this kind of like genre that can't be can't be replicated by westerners I, I can't explain it i mean one of the things that makes those movies so appealing is just the strange characters the the english dubs i mean how you know you know the, the guy moves his lips and then five minutes later the words come out Th that's what makes it appealing i mean it, you know and then you know just the over-the-top sound effects i mean every you know they throw a punch it sounds like a building coming down um carpenter i thought was trying to parry that parody that and copy it and make it like more mainstream and it didn't work. Um, I love the film. I mean, I think big trouble is, is just a great film. I mean, but I always felt like it was, he was, he, he, he was trying to copy something that didn't, that was almost uncopyable. Um, you know, unless you actually brought in the Shaw brothers to, to film it. Um, I just didn't think, I just didn't think it was going to work. I, I mean, I don't think a Westerner can, can do what, 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 you know, what, you know, that, that, that you can't duplicate an Easterner's, uh, you know, filming of, of, of a karate movie. I mean, you know, even the B movie ones, um, you know, I mean, they're, they're just so uniquely filmed. I, I think they're entertaining as hell. I mean, maybe for the wrong reasons, because they're just so over the top, sometimes silly, but I mean, they certainly are entertaining, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of uh, Big Trouble in Little China. And, uh, you know, like I said, I always thought that he was just kind of maybe copying a Shaw Brother movie, but maybe he didn't need to. 
but um, you know, I, I, I like the films. I, I like, I like big trouble. Well, next in the mouth of madness, I think uh, Prince of Darkness might be Carpenter's most underrated film. Uh, like a lot of his work, both movies seem to be ahead of the curve by a few years. As far as Prince is concerned, what are your thoughts on Carpenter's use of quantum physics in the film? While applying quantum physics to the supernatural, it's fairly cliche now. This was extremely novel when the film dropped. I can't really think of another movie that was, uh, you know, kind of surfing those currents at the time. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you there. Um... I always I, I liked Prince of Darkness. And again, this was um, a, a movie that, you know, you know, didn't really do well at the box office, I think has really stood the test of time. I think it's a it's a really good movie. Um, there is a deleted scene in it. If you have the Blu-ray um, that's worth watching, because it, 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 if you watch the deleted scene, the whole movie is essentially a dream um, in the one character's mind, the, the, the main the main protagonist. Um, it's clearly it's clearly meant to be sort of like a Wizard of Oz illusion um, where where he dreams the whole thing and then wakes up at the end of it. Um, but that that's that's in that's in a, a that's a deleted scene. That's not in the theatrical cut. I think it turns up in a couple of TV versions. But no, I, I like the idea. You had mentioned in an email and I agree with you that, it, you know, it, it's sort of a, a, a runs parallel with the AIDS epidemic. I mean, I, I think you could see or see citations to that in there. Um, you have. Um, the the whole idea of like you said of of you know quantum mechanics and and you know it was almost sort of the idea of Jesus being a space alien and aliens in the Bible I mean that was way ahead of its time uh, back then um, you know that's something now you know like on ancient aliens you see on the History Channel all the time I mean you know this this goes back way in time I, I you know you know to what the mid eighties I mean that way ahead of its time so no I I, I like the idea. Of, of using quantum mechanics to sort of tell this religious story. Um, and, you know, the whole idea of, you know, that the, the Prince of Darkness is kept in this sort of, uh, you know, supernatural tank, um, you know, guarded by the secret brotherhood that no one, no one, you know, um, knows about. I mean, you could clearly see some sort of like, you know, quasi Masonic aspect of, you know, forbidden wisdom being handed down generation to generation. I thought that was very unique. Um, if, if you really have an eye for it, um, and I, I think that the, the symbolism was more just meant to be creepy, um, than anything when they arrive at the church, um, they, this, this is just me being from Baltimore. Um, when they arrive at the church, you're going to notice the statue, um, sitting outside the church. That's the Adams Memorial, um, that sits in Washington, DC. It's this cloaked hooded woman. Um, sitting there, um, it's a grave monument. To his is a copy, of course. Um, but if you're from Baltimore, there, there was a couple. I forget the name of the, the sculpture who made it. Um, it was it was it was made in in the late 19th century for I believe a few descendants of John Adams or maybe John Quincy Adams. Um, the statue's over in Washington D.C. in a, in a, in a cemetery. Um, the artist who oh, made it. Oh, is it Daniel um, Chester French? Maybe. Yeah, I'd have to go look it up. Look, if you go to Google and type in the Adams Memorial, it'll it'll come up. Um, but in Baltimore, there was one also in, in, in uh, Druid, Druid Cemetery. And the one in Baltimore had all sorts of uh, urban legends around it. If you, if you went out to it at midnight and sat on it, it would come alive and squeeze you to death. Um, there's stories of its eyes glowing red at night. Um, there's stories of that um, where, where, where its shadow was cast during the day, grass wouldn't grow. I mean, it just really had this really sinister reputation. And in Baltimore, it sat on a grave of a guy named Agnes 
Um, that was his last name. And it, and it was called Black Aggie um, in Baltimore. I mean, it's a whole urban legend. It has a whole um, thing surrounding it here in Baltimore, Black Aggie. And it was eventually moved. And I, I believe it's now near the Smithsonian or maybe, um, you know, like around DuPont Circle now in D.C. Yeah, the Adams Memorial, there's one in D.C., it was a grave mar- marker for Marion Hooper Adams and Henry Adams. It's this cloak woman sitting there. It's also called Grief. It's called also the Mystery of the Hereafter. Was okay, it's it, in Rock City Cemetery. Yeah, it was sculpted by August Augustus Saint Gaudens. He called it the Mystery of the Hereafter, the Peace of God that Patheth Understanding. Grief was what the newspapers called it. He made another sculpture, uh, a copy, Black Aggie. Uh, which was at the uh, was at the grave of uh, General Felix Agnes, that was in his uh, grave site in Druid Druid Hill Druid Ridge, excuse me, in Baltimore. Grave of uh, General Felix Agnes in Druid Ridge Cemetery in Pikesville, Maryland. It was a it was an unauthorized replica of the one of the Adams Memorial in Rock Creek Cemetery in D.C. Black Aggie was moved. It's now at a courtyard at the Dolly Mad- Madison House. Uh, on Lafayette Square oh, Lafayette. in Washington, D.C. <laughs> it's another yeah, interesting place to put it. Yeah, that, that's where it is today. But but Black Aggie had all sorts of urban legends around it here in Baltimore. You know, like I said, it would come to life at midnight, its eyes glowing red. But if, if you watch if you watch Prince of Darkness, the reason I got into this is when you watch it and they arrive at the cemetery, or they arrive at the church, um, there's a there's a copy, a replica of the Adams Memorial sitting, sitting in front of it. Uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. Oh no! I'll definitely have to go back and check on that. That's uh, that's an interesting catch there. What are your thoughts on the use of time travel in Prince of Darkness? That was another thing that I found really striking because you have that kind of big reveal at the end. Because they theoretically they've been getting these transmissions, I think, on the TVs from the future, and right. then at the very end you find it's the one lady who had actually become the Antichrist. <laughs> Right, that was the girlfriend, and I think I think that was identified as like tachyons. I, b- I believe was was what they said. It was like these transmissions coming from the future, and yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's really um, interesting, and it and it's it's fascinating because you know it's 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 one of those theories that you know I never really I when I when I watch the movie I have it here on Blu-ray. You know, is it is it you know could could this somehow explain how maybe you know movies are predictive. Um, you know, it's 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 perhaps the filming of the movie. It's it's generating some sort of or being in tune with information that's being generated or produced from the future. Um, I don't know if that's the case or not, but it's certainly an interesting theory to say the least. Absolutely, and that would be kind of fitting too with um for a Carpenter film to have that theme in it because as you were just sort of alluding to, Escape from New York obviously has been cited as a major uh, instance of predictive programming for nine eleven, uh, quote unquote, the predictive programming. But yeah, there's uh, I would say there's definitely some quite a bit of other iconic stuff in Carpenter's films that you could apply to that as well. So, yeah, there's always something going on in, inside inside his films. One of the ones I always liked, it's a slow burn movie, was They Live. I always thought that the Rowdy Roddy Piper's character name was interesting because you have this um, whole theme this whole theme in there of, 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 I mean, you really do have a Gnostic undercurrent with that thing where you have these hidden pus, puppet masters, these archons who are, are manipulating reality through materialism, through advertisement. Um, and there was a um, Gnostic, one of the Gnostic fountainheads was this guy named Basilides. 
Um, and what he proposed, this was way back, back in the day, 2000 years ago, was he gets into this idea of learned ignorance and nothingness. And he, he put forth this idea that the only way you could escape these, these demiurgic archons, these hidden manipulators, which of course the space aliens in, in, in they live was, he said was nothingness. He said was, and this is a, like a spinoff of Zen Buddhism was, you know, just to spend your time meditating, concentrating on nothing, not speaking, having your eyes closed. This was an escape. This is the way you escaped uh, the archons, these hidden puppet masters. And I always thought that was interesting. The, the Roddy Roddy Piper, Rowdy Roddy Piper character's name is Nada, which is Spanish for nothing. Um, and I always, I thought, always thought that was interesting that it had this, you know, sort of Gnostic theme with these hidden archons, but it was Piper's character who was the guy who was able to break them. And his name literally meant nothing. Um, and I, I always thought that kind of harkened back to Basilides, this, this Gnostic philosopher who kind of said, you know, the way to deal with these people is, is nothingness. I always thought that was very, very, very interesting. Yeah, that is fascinating, especially when you sort of look at that uh, that particular period of Carpenter's career. Uh, it's probably my favorite uh, with the films that he made at the late uh, 1980s and then in the Mouth of Madness in 1994. Uh, I think the only other films he did between They Live and Madness were the, oh gosh, what was it, Memories of Invisible Man, the, uh, the Chevy Chase movie that he directed amazingly, and um, oh, Body Bags, I think, but... Uh, with the major horror works that he was doing there with Prince of Darkness, They Live, and In the Mouth of Madness, there's really a distinct Gnostic theme in all three of those, and especially the notion that reality uh, is not what we think it is or is being manipulated by some external force. Um, Absolutely. I, I agree with you 100% there. That's That's definitely present in Prince of Darkness and They Live, no question about it. Well, yes. I mean, I know you haven't seen it in the mouth of madness, but it's. No, I gotta watch that one. Yeah, it's 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 centered around a horror novelist, Sutter Kane, who's sort of modeled on Stephen King, and uh, effectively, uh, the main character, the private detective played by Sam Nail, begins to question whether or not uh, the world is being transformed into a Sutter Kane novel. So it definitely gets into a lot of those same kinds of themes. And uh, certainly I think that this was probably the uh, the most philosophical period of Carpenter's career, to put it mildly. Yeah, definitely. Well, Robert, it has been a uh, great chat here. Uh, did you have any closing thoughts or anything before we sign off here? No, I just wanted to thank you again for having me on uh, the farm. It was my pleasure to be here. Again, just real quick, a shameless plug. If you liked what I was talking oh, about, just visit it. my website, www.robertwsullivaniv.com. Information about Lee, me, links to buy the books. And uh, again, thank you, Steve, for having me on. It was my pleasure uh, you know, to, to be a guest on your show. Yes, sir. And thank you again for coming on. And uh, I got to have you back at some point to talk the Royal Arch of the Knock. Uh, again, I'll, I'll do a shameless plug for you on that. Please, folks, buy that one. It's a really, really amazing book on so many levels. Um, thank you. So on that note, we will uh, sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And as always, good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>
I'm just working at the quarry, y'all. I ain't in a hurry, y'all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki, up. Stuck down in the stick. Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what. Put it up and knock it down. Moving on that big around. Come on, mama, jump down. Turn around, do it for me. Stick it out. Say one, two, three, Geronimo. Jump, baby, we gotta go. Hands tied, blindfold. Jump into that battle zone. I said it's time to get the fuck out. Cause they done let the wolves out. Shooting up the street, mama, fight or fight adrenaline. You feel that little tingle in your feet, mama, no retreat. Mobilize your whole fleet, hit the street. Tell me that you good for it, you want peace, go to war for it. Say one, two, three, Geronimo, jump, baby, we gotta go. Screaming with me, scream, Geronimo. Never getting used to it Got bells of weed and catapults With Santa wet diffused in it Shoot it over the castle wall The Migra can't patrol it off From Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught a Realized if a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey, best believe They sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy With people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ Talking about that BMC We got no economy If we ain't got no enemy The Popo and the BP DHS and Army Honeywell and L UAVs, officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for. See you all on payday, see you at the Safeway. Bisbee lives on crazy checks, BP on that fast pay. I sing my hooly blues, y'all. I don't make the rules, y'all. Just paying my dues, y'all. But I'm just saying, sorry, hippies. If Great White Father don't make payroll, forget about your maple. It's just the one thing that ain't too clear. I said people always bitching about the government here. But that war administration's our whole civilization, what?